This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. We're really glad that you could join us today as we talk about the best books of 2012, according to the Publishers Weekly Best Books list. And this is as we've seen them. Yeah, this is this is always my favorite time of the year, going through the, the best uh, books of the year, and, you know, really reading through all of the top books, the books that have gotten those famous Publishers Weekly starred reviews, and figuring out which ones are really the best of the best. It's a lot of work, but it's so much fun. And going back, I mean, it, you, know, you, you have to go back in time, even to earlier the year before, to try and get all those titles that we covered. Uh, you know, since uh, Publishers Weekly, we often work three, four months ahead of time on books. Uh, by the time the book comes out, we're so familiar with them already. So we're we're going back, and, and this is the time of year where, yeah, we all get together and talk about it. So um, what do you see? What, what what grabbed you, Rose? Well, what grabbed me this year, um, and which made it onto our, our top ten list, which covers all genres, uh, top ten overall, was Victor Laval's The Devil in Silver. Um, this is a horror novel that's being marketed as a literary novel. Uh, it really straddles the line. Laval is very much known as a literary author, um, but but there's no question that this is spooky, spooky stuff. It's set in a mental ward. Uh, it's got someone or something stalking the halls, and no nobody really mm. knows whether the devil, uh, as as he is called, is genuinely demonic or just someone who is really, really crazy, uh, even more so than the people locked up in this ward, some of whom aren't crazy at all. They're just there through bureaucratic accidents or laziness uh, or because no one else knew what to do with them. Now, this is Victor Laval's second time on our list. That's right. Yeah, He was also on our list in, I want to say, 2010. Um, and uh, or maybe and he was our cover. He was on and the he cover was our, of our cover. Yeah, yeah exactly. he's very very dapper fellow. Real, he is real he nice is. sense of style. He made a great cover model. Um, yeah. and uh, and it, it, that was uh, one of the things that made me very glad to be able to welcome him back to this list to say that that wasn't a fluke. He was really one of the the best uh, writers writing this this sort of interesting, very slightly fantastical or is it reality questioning literary right. fiction. He's a real gentleman too. I met him a couple of times. Yeah, he's now, a sweetheart. And is this 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 is a, a bit of a departure from his the the one that he uh, received the uh, previous award from us? You know, to be honest, I haven't read his other books. Yeah. Um, this this was the first title of his that I'd read, but um, I went to a reading and heard him read an excerpt from it, and I just thought, wow, you know, I have I have to really uh, hang on to this because, as you know, I handle the speculative mm-hmm. fiction, the science fiction, fantasy, horror, um, and also the romance. So I'm always very interested in how. Uh, the boundary blurs between literary fiction and genre fiction, this fiction with these different genre conventions. And this one was obviously marketed as literary, but it had so much uh, of the, you know, other genre elements to it. Well, it's marketed as literary the same way Stephen King is marketed as literary. Uh, there, there's, uh, there's, which wasn't always the case. Which though. was absolutely not always the case. You know, when Carrie came out, or right. you know, so his earlier books. You know, there they are in the tattered little paperbacks that you right. pick up at the drugstore. These were not the big blockbusters. It was later titles like you know, Lisey's right. Story or Duma Key. Right. Um, but you know, it's still it's still the same guy writing them. Ultimately. 
what matters, I think, is not what section of the bookstore you find it in, uh, mm -hmm. but what what you get when you open the book. Yeah. Now, for me, I'm going to uh, – one book that caught my attention was uh, by Anne Applebaum. It's uh, called The Iron Cur Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe. It's published by Doubleday. And this was her – this year she was a nominee for the National Book Award. Uh, five years ago, six years ago, she was also a nominee. Uh, she didn't win either time, but she was a nominee, which is, I mean, huge. It's an honor just to uh, be nominated. It's an honor, exactly. That's for, what I hear. And this was for a book called Gulag uh, about, and she, she did an amazing amount of research and writes really well on the gulags of, of Russia. And this on oh, the Iron Curtain, the crushing of Eastern Europe. Uh, she looks uh, behind the curtain of darkness that descended on Eastern Europe with the subjugation of USSR uh, during and after World War II. And this book was, uh, I think, a pretty powerful book as well. Both of them really well researched. And I have to just point out one thing about Anne Applebaum. She She's uh, she's a pretty diverse writer. She actually has a cookbook. Now, here's someone who huh. writes is it a Russian food cookbook? It's actually the Polish kitchen. <laughs> Inside the Polish kitchen, uh, uh, she's married to a, a Polish dignitary, and it's coming out uh, in January by uh, Chronicle Books. But I, I'd be – and Chronicle uh, publishes these wonderful history uh, – it's not exactly history, but it's a, a culinary history in ways through recipes. And I'm sure she's, she's, she's done a wonderful and uh, exacting job on this. But um, I was surprised to see a book on Polish cuisine coming out, but – I think it's going to go beyond your typical blinny, blintzes, and uh, borscht. So another book, and I'm just going to just one more nonfiction book that really caught my attention. This was Detroit is the, is the Place to Be, The Afterlife of an American Metropolis by Mark Benelli from Metropolitan Books. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be, seems to me that, that Detroit is kind of making a comeuppance or maybe possibly some very to. interesting things are going on there that yeah. i don't think are getting a lot of attention so it because you know so so many sections of the city fell into absolute disrepair right and uh, and now are being reclaimed by the residents in ways that may or may not be sanctioned by the government but who cares you know these are the people on the ground and they're going to make their city as wonderful as they can right. with whatever resources they have so is that what's covered in this book yeah exactly i mean he talks about that he talks about uh the issues of race and class in this city, uh, how that's played within the government policies, the 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 you know kind of the uh, self destruction of the city, but also in ways this rebirth that's coming up, um, and and there's also from what I see, there's another book on Detroit coming up uh, in another few months. And this might be the third book on Detroit that I've seen. Uh, and I, I wonder if this is going to be a place where people realize they can afford, start moving to. Uh, some people believe that this might be a, a city of resurgence in the next couple decades. But, uh, but anyway, this is, uh, by all counts, a pretty fascinating history of, 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 the, of the city. That sounds really interesting. I'll have to look it up. And certainly you know, um, there were rumors going around a couple of years ago when the, when the, the real crash hit um mm -hmm. and uh then people are saying you can buy a house in detroit for five dollars right exactly um, you know but the, what happens next is right. uh up in the air very much right now i'm mark rotella uh from publishers weekly and i'm rose fox also from publishers weekly mark and i are book reviews editors uh we get the the eagle eye view of what's going on uh, in in the book world every week, and now we're talking about uh, every year about the best books of 2012. Um, tell me a little bit about other nonfiction that really caught your eye this year. Well, there's I, you know, we each, both Rose and I handle quite a few sections, quite 
uh, within the magazine. Uh, I handle such things as uh, music and travel and uh, certain histories. And uh, one book that I wanted to talk about was uh, uh, Reinventing Bach by Paul Eli, which is basically how people hear Bach, listen to Bach in the 20th century. It's a really wonderful um large book on on Bach and the experiences from Glenn Gould, uh, his interpretation of Bach to any a conductor. Um, and and basically, he, he poses that Bach is still so relevant uh, in our lives right now. And, and among the other books that I handle are uh, in the lifestyle section, I handle cookbooks. And I'm just going to list a couple that grabbed my attention this year. The Burma, the uh, Rivers of Flavor uh, by uh, Naomi Duguid, and this is a cookbook on on Burma. And uh, another one is the Barefoot Contessa's Foolproof Recipes You Can Trust, which uh, landed on Pub- Publishers Weekly's uh, bestseller list. Rose, what do you have? What did you uh, I cover the science fiction, fantasy, and horror, as well as the romance. There's a real uh, broad range in science fiction. I have a couple of collections. Uh, I, I particularly want to highlight a collection by Kidge mm. Johnson, uh, who's been a, a heralded short story writer in the field for many years, won a lot of awards. Um, people have been waiting for this collection a long time, and it's just stunning. Every It feels like every story is in a different genre, um, and they're all just very, very powerful. Um, and in romance, entirely on the other uh, side of things, uh, there's a book called Dog Days, um, which is about a woman who changes bodies with a dog. Um, fortunately, she's in love with a veterinarian, so it means she gets his hands all over her, but maybe not quite the way she wanted. And I picked this up and I thought, this looks like the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And and then I read it um, because you know, the, the PW reviewer said, this is great. And it turns out... It's really great. And, you know, she and the dog get to know each other. And the dog is, of course, in a human body. Um, Really, it turns out all they both want is their forever home. And I think part of what what, what our job at PW is finding these surprises. I mean, you absolutely have to keep an open mind. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio. And we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we have a special guest. We have Scott Heimendinger coming. He's the author of The Modernist Cuisine at Home for all you cookbook fans. Hi, welcome back to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. I'm Mark Rotella. Now, I know we have a lot of foodies out there, a lot of home cooks, people buying, collecting cookbooks, cooking from home, and we have a special guest on with us uh, today with a uh, a book called The Modernist Cuisine. Now, this book, the first book, came out in 2011, and it was uh, it's it's a four volume, 2,500 page behemoth. And this book sold over 50,000 copies. Now, that's a lot. That's a pretty pretty nice sum uh, for any book, but especially given that this was priced at $625. Now, just last year, Nathan Mirvold, he was the first, CT, uh, the first CTO at Microsoft, decided to publish um, a book that was maybe a little better for, for home cooks, something more suited to the home kitchen. And they came out with uh, Modern Kitchen, uh, the Modern Cuisine Cooks at Home, uh, published by the Cooking Lab. 
And this one is about 456 pages, and it's priced only at $140. Now, I'm going to read you the, our review. Uh, we say this is a desktop version of the author's 2,400-page mainframe. The book is divided into two sections. Part one focuses on the machinery and explores the two and uh, explores the tools. And the second part is a collection of 406 recipes. We say, as a result, it is a safe bet that the turkey confit, this is for home cooks, uh, that the turkey confit recipe is one of the very few places where the terms needle nose pliers and duck fat can be found listed side by side. And we have with us uh, Scott Heimendinger. He is the director of uh, applied research for modernist cuisine. He came originally from Microsoft and IBM. And so in ways we're kind of uh, combining, or he's kind of combined, two big parts of geekdom. That's food geekdom and tech geekdom. 2011, he joined the Cooking Lab as the uh, creator of Modernist Cuisine and Modernist Cuisine at Home. Scott, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So, you know, looking at this book, I have a copy at my desk, and I am a uh, tech geek. I, I, I love tools. I, I work on appliances inside and out of the house, and this was uh, a book that I just I just loved. I mean, how accessible is this book, really, for, for home cooks, do you think? Well, so we think it's very accessible, but let's be completely honest. There are a lot of recipes in the book that you're probably not going to make every single night. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot that you will make every single night, things that are easy and quick and will, um, uh, and will make you a better cook. But there's also stuff in there that we think uh, is for special occasions. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, we think it's a really interesting question to ask, what would the ultimate roast chicken be? Now, mm -hmm. There are gazillions of recipes for roast chicken, all different methods. Do you right. stuff the skin? Do you rub butter on it? Do you baste? Do you do all this stuff? But fundamentally, roast chicken is a contradiction. You want two <laughs> separate goals. You want this beautiful, crispy skin, and you also want really moist meat. And if you're cooking your chicken with um, uh, a single cooking method, mm -hmm. um, uh, you're going to end up making compromises. So we ask the question, okay, well, what if you didn't want a compromise. And we provide a recipe that starts off with um, injection brining uh, your turkey. So that's brining it using needles uh, to inject the brine directly into the meat. And do you do it right into the meat or between the uh, meat and the, uh, and the skin? Uh, so, so it's not like a rub, right? We go into the meat, but uh -huh. underneath the skin, so you don't pierce the skin. You kind of lift it up and go underneath. And the reason for that mm -hmm. is um, that brining, we all know, is great at making meats juicier, but it's also great at making skin juicier. Mm -hmm. And juicy skin equals, you know, soggy, limp skin. Uh, so we want to avoid that. Mm -hmm. And then there are all these other steps that you go through, and you get a really, really perfect roast chicken. Now, you may not go to that effort every night, but we still think it's really nice to know how would you do it if you want to. Uh, Sam Sifton, he was the former uh, food critic of the New York Times, and he is uh, now the national editor of the Times. So he came out with a uh, cookbook uh, called Thanksgiving, uh, How to Cook It, and in that he recommends possibly one, one way of cooking your uh, Thanksgiving turkey is deep frying it. Is mm -hmm. this a similar method? I mean, is it some in a way to bring out the crispness? 
Yes, uh, deep frying will really optimize for crispy skin. Of course, you know most of our favorite crispy things in the world are deep fried. Um, but uh, when you do just that method, there's also a trade-off, which is deep frying has very high heat uh, with very high rate of conductivity into the flesh of the bird. So you um, uh, you do kind of make a trade-off that you're adding a lot of risk of overcooking the meat mm-hmm. if deep frying is the exclusive way that you're cooking your bird. Now, what was the philosophy about this book? I mean, uh, before you know, we'll talk a little bit more about recipes uh, as well. But how did this book come about? I mean, I mean, here you have you have people who are who have worked with computers. I mean, and, and devising programs. Did one type of thinking lend itself to to food? Was there a passion in food? And how did that come about? I think the uh, the geek or the engineer's mindset is definitely at play here, mm-hmm. very much so uh, in the way that Nathan came up with the notion of originally making modernist cuisine the the big set, the six hundred and twenty five dollars mm-hmm. set, um, and that is really to say there are all these things that people have done in cooking for hundreds of years, but very often we don't really understand why or at a more fundamental level what are the forces at play, what's really going on, um, and. To to say, oh, you should do it this way because that's the way it's always been done, mm-hmm. uh, or that's the way I was taught, that's not, usually not a very good answer to an engineer. Um, and so Nathan applied his considerable intellect and resources in developing the original modernist cuisine books because he wanted to really fundamentally understand what was happening when we cook our foods. Um, and by having that base level scientific understanding, well, that enables you to mm-hmm. make all of these breakthroughs. Uh, and creating more flavorful dishes, better foods, um, uh, or or to achieve things that you couldn't otherwise. Um, I can give you a very quick example. This actually oh, sure, from, sure. From the new book, from Modernist Cuisine at Home. So uh, I, I think it's safe to say that most people really like melty cheese, you know, over mm-hmm. nachos or in fondue or uh, on pizzas or things like that. That's just a human thing to it's love melty tr- cheese. True. And it's, I have to say, having tried to do it myself, it's kind of tough to get the perfect uh, texture in your melt. Absolutely. If you, uh, you order a pizza, uh, you may notice that there's this oil slick on top of the pizza. Mm-hmm. That oil uh, used to be held together in the cheese. Cheese is actually an emulsion, um, and there's that oil component that's kind of suspended inside. But when you heat the cheese, the emulsion breaks and the oil seeps out. Mm-hmm. So you end up with this really oily mess instead of a nice cheese sauce. Well, way back when, a guy named James L. Kraft, who you may recommend, uh, recognize, is Kraft Singles or the Kraft Foods Corporation. Mm-hmm. He discovered oh, sure. that you can add uh, an ingredient called sodium phosphate to your cheese and it would melt perfectly. That emulsion wouldn't break. Well, we have a recipe in Modernist Cuisine at Home. Um, actually, it's basically a whole chapter devoted to this technique using sodium citrate, which is a much more widely available ingredient. And we teach you how to make cheese sauces for your mac and cheese, for cheese slices, for cheese fondue, cheese crumble. Um, that overcomes this. So without understanding how cheese works in the first place and what happens when it's melting, you really have no chance of saving it from becoming an an oily disaster. So this is something that uh, home cooks can go into, maybe prepare the cheese ahead of time or prep the cheese ahead of time and then then prepare it for for maybe a festive event? 
Yes, absolutely. Although uh, the, this technique only takes a few minutes. Once, um, once my wife learned about it while I was going through manuscripts of the book, she insisted that I make it, and 10 minutes later we had amazing nachos in front of us. I'm speaking with Scott Heimendinger, who joined uh, the Cooking Lab, is the creator of Modernist Cuisine and Modernist Cuisine at Home. And let me just describe to our listeners what this book looks like. So as I've said, it's 456 pages. It's beautifully photographed. And the photos in it are, are that of, of tech labs, the tech labs. I mean, they're, they're, it's almost like you're, 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 uh, you're able to slice into various layers of what you're cooking to see what is going on scientifically. I mean, of course, there's also wonderful illustrations of, of the food itself. Now, what does your lab look like? It doesn't look like most kitchens, actually. Right. It's um, it's part of a larger laboratory. And do you a, call it a lab or a kitchen? Well, we think that uh, the kitchen, even your home kitchen, is a laboratory. It's um, it's the only laboratory that most people have mm. in their homes. So we don't think it, it's uh, necessarily important to draw such a hard distinction. But it would be hard for people to come to our kitchen and say that it wasn't a laboratory. Now. This book was published, was, was self-published, and I bring this up because often on the show and often I get asked, uh, and, and many of us are publishers weekly, is it worth it to self-publish a book? I mean, will it sell? Will you find an audience? What was the reasoning for self-publishing this book? Part of the reason for self-publishing is because uh, the original modernist cuisine is so unusual, it's so different from other books or cookbooks uh, that are out there that at the time Nathan and the team were creating it, publishers couldn't really wrap their heads around it. Um, they had most of the book completed at this point, and uh, you know, it's uh, approaching over 2,000 pages with all of these incredible color photographs. Uh, that's not typical for um, cookbooks. Mm -hmm. Nathan likes to describe it in, in this way. When you sit down to design a product, there are fundamentally two ways you can go about it. One is you can do a lot of market research and figure out you know, what, what's popular, where the profitable segments of the market are, who's buying what, and then design something to try to hit that sweet spot. Mm -hmm. The second way you can design a product is you can design something that you love or that you uh, would want to buy, the ultimate for you, and then hope that there are other people out there who are like you as well. And that's how modernist cuisine was created. Mm -hmm. And uh, Nathan likes to say that, you know, most of the great breakthroughs in the world are created that second way. Now, most of the world's biggest failures also happen that second <laughs> way, too. So, of course, it's a gamble. Um, but in our case, that gamble has paid off very well. Well, you know, I, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm thinking that this book is... Uh I think you have maybe a larger male readership uh, in this cookbook than perhaps other cookbooks. And I want to say maybe because of the gadgetry. I mean, could that be the case? I mean... Certainly, there. You know, they, the professional cooking tends to skew male anyway. Uh, we've got you know all this gadget porn in the book, ovens cut in half, and things like that, and and that is typically a male thing. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, but we actually we don't really have gender in mind as we're creating or marketing the book. We um, uh, we think that cooking and food is something that has universal appeal. I agree. I agree. Now, uh, just to end off a little bit, I, we mentioned this uh, con this turkey confit recipe. Are mm -hmm. you familiar with that one at hand? 
Yes. And uh, the needle nose pliers and the duct fat. Yes. Well, what does one do with both of those? Uh, the purpose of the needle nose pliers is to remove the tendons um, from inside those turkey legs. And by removing the tendon, it helps the muscle stay relaxed while it's cooking so it doesn't tighten up and squeeze out juice. And then, of course, it's confit and confit is submerged in fat. Right. Uh, so in this case, the duck fat is surrounding our turkey. Now, in a traditional confit, you need a lot of fat because you have to fill a pot with fat and then you put your meat or aromatics in there. Mm -hmm. um, in our case, since we're cooking this uh, turkey leg sous vide or in a water bath, we actually just need enough fat to coat the outside of the turkey leg in a plastic bag that's then cooked in the water bath for 24 hours. Wow. So you have the sous vide right there. Yes. Fantastic. Well, this has been this has been wonderful. So I also want to say that uh, Scott Heimendinger, who we're talking to right now, is the director of applied research for the Modernist Cuisine. He also has a blog, SeattleFoodGeek.com, where he uh, explores at-home adaptations of modernist cooking techniques through the use of inexpensive. Is it true? Inexpensive equipment? It's all relative. Okay, okay great. <laughs> well, Scott, thank you so much for uh, coming on to our show. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And we have with us here on the line Mike Harfke, who is one of our fellow editors at Publishers Weekly. Mike handles the fiction reviews. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Very glad to How have you? you on the show. We're doing very well. Having a good time. Uh, great. And, uh, and I'm told that you have some things to tell us about early books for 2013. So I'm very excited to know what we have in store. Yeah, um, I have a, a few to talk about. I mean, there are a couple that I've been reading personally uh, lately that I'm pretty excited about. Well, what gets you excited? That's what we want to know. I know. Uh, not that much gets me excited. I'm, you know, it's hard, <laughs> to get, hard to get me excited. A good um, book, maybe. Yeah, good book. Um, and uh, and it's funny because this time a lot of the a lot of what has got me more excited are, are collections. Uh, in one way or another, um, the first one that I, I should like know about, collections are, are are often a difficult sell in, in uh, yes. book publishing, and so it's when when you uh, when someone is excited about a collection of short stories, it's it's a good thing. Yeah, it is a good thing, and and you know you continually hear, as I'm sure you're both aware, that quote unquote no one wants to read short story collections. Uh, I know a lot of writers who feel pressure. Mm -hmm to write a novel and not a collection, you know, this is a standard thing for agents to tell their clients, oh, it's great, sure. you've got a collection, but, you know, where's the novel? Or, or to somehow put together collection stories into one novel and to, to make it one narrative of, of uh, collected vignettes, perhaps. It, Exactly. Yeah. And even Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad sure. was marketed as a novel. And I know a lot of people who consider it to be a short story collection. And when you say yeah. a collection, you mean a bunch of stories by one author rather than an anthology, which would be a lot of different stories by a lot of different authors. Yes. In, this, in these cases, I do. Although those can be fun, too. Yeah. I, right. I'm a huge <laughs> fan of short fiction. But anyway, tell us, tell us what you got. Well, uh, the one I'm actually reading right now is Susan Steinberg's Spectacle. Uh, this is coming out in January uh, with Grey Wolf. And in our review, 
uh, we said that the collection defies category. Uh, and it could be called uh, linked short stories, um, as is often you hear that word linked, mm-hmm. because marketers want to uh, make readers think that it's more like a novel than a collection of stories. But uh, in this case, we think that it could be, it could just as easily have been called a novel because all the stories are narrated by the same or very similar uh, unnamed women. The first story in the collection is called Superstar, and in it a woman, a very a young woman who is conflicted in her infatuation with a guy that she has been in bars with, and and these are themes that recur again and again in the novel. Uh, the character, the female uh, protagonist, is constantly going to bars with men, constantly getting into cars with men, and nothing ever goes that well mm-hmm. for her. Um, so in Superstar, she actually steals the car stereo from a guy's car it's parked mm-hmm. out in front of the bar, and um, because she wants to have a piece of him. And the thing unfolds in a in a lovely way because we don't know exactly what the nature of their relationship is at this point when she's narrating she's in her own car with friends and when they steal the stereo she waits outside and then the the man comes out of the bar with another woman and uh and they speed away the thing about all of these stories and the thing that's so seductive about uh Steinberg's writing is is her voice mm-hmm. and I only realized this when I started reading another book while still reading these stories in Spectacle. Her voice is like a powerful vortex, and it really pulls you in. It's incredibly entertaining. Uh, You get the sense that this woman, who actually calls herself a wrecking ball uh, from time to time in the collection and also refers to herself almost in every story as a whore, but that word is also filtered through her, you know, there's some other mediation because it's what she's been called by a number of other men mm. uh, in her life, and uh, so it's really complicated. Um, but she's she's definitely like a, uh, a a human wrecking ball. We're talking with Mike Harvkey, deputy reviews editor at Publishers Weekly, and as you're describing this uh, collection of short stories, Mike, I, I I can't help to think that it's it's kind of like a uh, you know variations on a theme in much the same way that Juno Diaz's uh, most recent collection of short stories are, and that his is on also heartbreak, but he is the one doing the. The, the cheating <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the forgetting <laughs> or yeah, trying to right. forget or trying not to forget. Right. Yeah. Junior. Uh, Junior. And, yeah, exactly. And this is how you lose her, which is a fantastic collection. Right. It's been a great you know, time for collections, actually. And that's a good analogy. Um, and I, I love Diaz and I love that book. And I think the only difference in well, not the only difference, but one of the differences is that in Diaz's collection, he's, he's a little more uh, dexterous in shifting points of view and characters. Junior appears a lot, but uh, I think three or four stories in, you get this uh, female uh, narrator, mm-hmm. uh, which right. was quite surprising to me, and, and he pulled it off very well. And in Spectacle, Steinberg sticks very closely to to this uh, female wrecking ball. So, Mike, are these meant to be sort of cautionary tales or humorous tales? Or and what, what will women reading this collection of stories by a woman about a woman who uh, does or 
endures unpleasant things uh, come away thinking. They're going to learn well, how to get a car stereo out of a car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how to, how to right, wreck, or is it a how-to right, manual? Yeah. How to wreck some lives. Right, you know, right, right. How to get in and out of bars quickly. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the really interesting thing, you know, in our review, we actually said that, that Steinberg subverts the feminist critique of women identified only by their male counterparts um, and delivers, you know, a multifaceted uh, female protagonist uh, with a lot of secrets and a lot of confusion and uh, in and out of a lot of relationships with a tremendous amount of baggage. Um, I don't think that they're probably going to be read as cautionary tales. And, and one of the things that's also so wonderful about these stories in this collection is the amount of humor uh, that is there as well, because she's so self-aware. Uh, I can't tell you how often, you know, each, if you see the page, each sentence, almost every sentence is its own paragraph on the page. So it, the whole thing unfolds quite often uh, in a very poetic uh, vein. And there's a lot of I statements, a lot of uh, I am this, or I did this, or I know this. So it's it's fascinating. Well, but it sounds great. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like a California encounter group. <laughs> no. <laughs> not those kinds of I statements. Right. Not those kind of I statements. <laughs> yeah, I have to say about, about short stories, I, I wonder if, if, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, that if, if we might find that they're going to become increasingly more popular as uh, the way we, we, we take in information is maybe in smaller bites, smaller, more powerful bites. And I wonder if people are starting again to, you know, starting to listen to that. And I'm just going to drag the old uh, analogy here on the ground one more time. But just, uh, just like as we're listening to 45 records right now. We listen to singles uh, rather than LPs. Uh, right. I wonder if that... Uh, anyway, I mean... Yeah. I, I, I think that's quite possible. Uh, I mean, are like, you seeing you know, more collections or is this just one... I am. Yeah, personally, yeah. I am. And, you know, I've been with uh, Publishers Weekly for about three years and in that time there has been uh, a bit of an increase. And, of course, we had a, a, a big dip in in. All, uh, it seems to me, in, in what was being published around 2010 or so with the economic collapse, mm -hmm. but uh, and, and I saw fewer collections right. coming out, especially fewer by debut authors then. Right. But I'm seeing a lot, a tremendous amount, in both uh, from big houses and, and small presses. Wow. I think it varies depending on the genre. Um, mm. I mean, in, in science fiction and fantasy, 2012 is a tremendous year for short fiction um, and actually not nearly as good one for, for long fiction. Mm. And I put mm. a couple of collections on my list of the best books of 2012, as we had oh, talked nice. about. Right. And, um, and this year I'm already starting to see some of those collections uh, come out and... At the same time, uh, I'm also handling the romance fiction, and it's very hard to write a, a romance short story because mm. uh, it's so much about character development, and it's really hard to squeeze all of that plot into the small format. Oh, sure. Oh, I could see. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I think it, it really varies uh, depending on the genre you're working in and the what the audience expects. So we're talking with Mike Harvkey, Deputy Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly Magazine, talking to us about books he's seeing in 2013, early 13, uh, 2000, early 2013. Mm. Um, what else you got? A collection of a different sort is... Uh, another collection. Yeah, another collection. Okay. This is a novella collection. Oh, I um, love novellas. I do, too. And so the best of both Harris worlds and ways. <laughs> Um, Jim Harrison is one of my personal favorites. Oh, sure. He, yep. I think, is a master of the novella form. He's written a ton of them. 
a ton. Right. And um, he has a new uh, collection coming out in January called The River Swimmer. It is uh, a diptych of novellas. That means two. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm glad. Let's, that let's try and steer away from the jargon a little bit. So, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, so the the river swimmer of the title is one novella, and the other one is called The Land of Unlikeness, um, which is about twice as long as, as the uh, title novella, mm-hmm. and um, features, The Land of Unlikeness features uh, a 60-year-old uh, man named Clive, who's been divorced for two decades and, and still thinks of that event as the starkest rupture in his life, he says more than once. And he, uh, I mean, I think Harrison, I think this can be on radio, but I, I, he's a, he does horny old geezers like nobody else. Um, and this is, uh, this is one of those horny old geezers right, in Clive. Right. Um, he, uh, unfortunately. Harry <laughs> Cruz might have been, might have been a, a contender for that award at one yeah, point. Yeah, he might have been. We should <laughs> start making plaques. Right, right. Or maybe like sandwich boards they right, have to wear right. around their necks. Um, so uh, Clive, uh, Clive at 60 is forced to take a three-month uh, absence from his professor's professorship at an Ivy mm. League college in New York because of letting himself get away, you know, and letting his uh, his his uh, eyes for some of his female students get the better of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uses his time to actually return to northern Michigan, which is where Harrison lives mm-hmm. and hunts and cooks. Uh, he returns to northern Michigan and uh, to care for his octogenarian mother, who wants nothing more than to watch the birds on the family farm. Mm. There are other things that happen. Uh, now, is this character also a bird hunter? Um, so it's just kind of, I don't know yeah, if that yeah, adds another yeah, element. Exactly. <laughs> Look at that. Um, not okay. a bird hunter. <laughs> right, right. The, there's I don't there's, know if that's gonna there's no extra layer of okay, metaphor yeah, yeah. here. Yeah, he, really he, he only stalks metaphorical okay. chicks, exactly. not, not real yeah. ones. Well done, Rose. Um, <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> He uh, he returns. He cares for his mother. He has uh, attempts to heal a rift with his uh, daughter, alienated a long time ago, and um, he also has a sister who is another sort of difficulty in his life. Mm-hmm. But uh, when he returns to the to the family farm in, in northern Michigan, he does reconnect with um, his high school love, and. Uh, he also, Clive, you know, was a painter, and he attempted young and you know early in life to have a career at that, and eventually abandoned it. Um, but he, uh, you know, rekindling his romance with his uh, original love uh, also leads to him rekindling his passion uh, for painting, and of course. This being Jim Harrison, he and and his uh, old love Lorette have a quote unquote crotch painting experience. Um, so, do I even do I even want to ask? I opened you up there. For- <laughs> yeah, you did. You sure no, did. I think I we're just a- we're just going to let that one sink under its own weight. <laughs> yeah, so we're good. speaking with Mike Harvkey. He's the deputy reviews editor, publishers weekly, handles fiction. Fiction of all kinds. He handles it. Kinds. He handles and it. And art. And uh, and art. And uh, so so you've got two collections of short short stories for us. Um, yeah. What do you have? What else? Well, this uh, the other novella in this Harrison collection. Just to quickly wrap that oh, sure. up, um, it's two novellas, and the and the the other one, which is very short. Diptych. Yeah. I would call it a tall tale. Um, 
and it's about uh, a 17-year-old uh, guy named Thad Love, who is a swimming prodig- prodigy. Right. He he um, gets is you know fairly badly injured in a fight with his girlfriend's father, um, which makes him then swim over 100 miles to Chicago. Um, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, in Chicago he meets a new girl. Um, and these are, again, some of Harrison's themes. Right. Uh, meets a new girl who takes him to France, um, and uh, they have a love affair. Uh, sad love actually ends up leaving her for someone else, uh, a nurse uh, in France who's um, you know, helping him heal because when he's in France, he decides to swim the uh, Loire River. Mm, this is sounding is, very uh, Hemingway at this point. Yeah, yeah. With the exception of a war, but but I guess the battle with a father is one one kind. Yeah, okay, that's a good a good point. Um, and in swimming the Loire River, he's seriously injured, and, and that is what leads him to this nurse. Um, so yeah, really, you know, very typical uh, Harrison stuff, and a lot of fun. How long how long has it been since we last heard from Harrison? Uh, not that long. He's actually incredibly prolific, mm. and um, it it's been a few years since. He's had a novella collection. Right. Um, the last thing, two years ago, or within the last two years, um, was a novel uh, also set in northern Michigan about a, a cult leader, mm. a religious sort of cult leader. And that was, I think it was called The Great Leader. Yeah, that makes that, – that's ringing a bell, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, fun stuff. Great. And um, I'm going to move on. Yeah. This sounds, that, and that one sounds right up the Mike Harkey alley, right yes, there. Yes, it does. It sounds, it? Sounds <laughs> it's on my bedside table. Um, <laughs> I do have another collection. We're going to wait on that uh, to talk about this amazing debut novel right. called The Twelve Tribes of Hattie. This is by uh, Ayanna Mathis, who is a young African-American writer. She studied at Iowa mm-hmm. with uh, Marilyn Robinson directly. Mathis had also spent some time living in Italy and uh, Mark mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> was actually working on a memoir about her time there when she, uh, at the urging of a friend, uh, applied for Iowa and she got in. And, you know, as everyone knows, Iowa's considered the top MFA program in the country. It was the first and uh, it produces amazing people. And so right. in Early in including her Flannery O'Connor, right? Wasn't Flannery she one O'Connor, of the first? Okay, yeah. one of the first, and um, it's you know it's a great place. And then um, there's also a poet uh, who came out of there that wrote a famous poem called "I Hate You, Iowa City." So, <laughs> all, all good information for our uh, future our listeners or future or, or hopeful writers out there. Yes. So um, Mathis, in starting to workshop early in her time at Iowa, this memoir she had put together. Uh, just ran up against a wall with Marilyn Robinson, who simply told her no, which led her to then embark on writing the stories that make up the 12 tribes of, of Hattie. So this also is definitely a novel, but the structure of it is, is you know, quite short story-like in that um, the book is broken down chapter. Every chapter is, is attached to a different uh, one of Hattie's offspring. And it's mostly third-person narration through the perspective of her large family. Mm-hmm. Um, and this also, in so doing, it progresses through the 20th century in a way that gives the reader a great uh, insight into not only the sweeping 
social changes uh, from the from the early 20s when this when this book begins um, to the uh, to the 80s actually when when the book ends. Um, but it it lets you see that all through the eyes of an African American family. Mm-hmm. Are, are you seeing more structural experimentation in fiction in general? I feel like there's been a lot of that lately. Like it's a really good time for it. People playing around with structure the way poets play around with the concepts of sonnets and sestinas. Yeah, I mean, I think I might be seeing a lot more of that. I, you know, the vast majority of, of what I see is sticking to the same, you know, sort of old broken record. Um, so it's it's nice when you know, you, you get something that does do this. And this could have been a gimmick, what what Mathis does here, but her voice and her prose are so strong and so confident, amazingly so for a first novel, that uh, that it works remarkably well. And it gets you, like I said, not only a portrait of, of a country, but a portrait of, a, of an entire family. And Hattie is a very complicated character in this book. She's she's not a very likable protagonist. She's done a lot of damage uh, to you know to her to her brood. I feel like that's sort of a, a theme today. These these unlikable protagonists. What what <laughs> yeah. what will keep readers reading about them? Well, I think that uh, the slowly unfolding portrait of uh, the woman, and I also think that in this case, the book begins with with a very sympathetic chapter of uh, Hattie as a 16-year-old um, having uh, giving birth to newborn twins, um, who she wants to call Jubilee in Philadelphia because they're in Philadelphia this time, and um, you know this sort of joyous possibility doesn't go very well uh, for her. So we do get a very sympathetic portrait of of Hattie um, as a young mother to begin the book. And then what follows from all of her subsequent children and even a grandchild uh, just complicates the portrait. Well, we're speaking with Mike Harfke, Deputy Reviews Editor, Publishers Weekly. He's given us some insight and uh, into, uh, in, into some of the books that are coming out early 2013. We've got two collections of short stories, a debut novel, and we've got one more. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, another debut collection of short fiction. Ah, a just, debut. So de- oh, okay, great. I've just got I've got them all on my sleeve. Um, this is by Manuel Gonzalez. It's a Riverhead book coming out in January. Um, and uh, Manuel is a graduate of Columbia MFA of, of the Columbia MFA program in in, uh, in fiction. And um, this is called the Miniature. Wife. This is your alma mater. Yes, All right. my alma mater, my alma mater, and uh, I knew Manuel a little bit. We were in different years at okay. school, so right. I uh, I knew him a little bit. And he actually, we spoke to him recently for the magazine, and um, he lives in Austin, Texas, and had for uh, a time a thriving pie business, and uh, had pie to, like sweet or savory yeah, pie. Yeah, sweet. Like okay. Pan and uh, pumpkin and you know. Oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, it was going well, but he was finding that he had to, he couldn't do both. He couldn't write and uh, run this uh, pie company. So he stepped away from the pie company. And I'm sure a lot of people in Austin are pretty upset about that. But uh, he was able to finish writing this collection of stories um, that I think is going to do really well. Which is food it, for the soul, right? <laughs> it is food for the soul. And it's easier to maybe like a pie, it, it you know, is best enjoyed in little bits. <laughs> about that. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, uh, 
So um, the miniature wife is uh, the title, which is also one of the stories in there. And and starting with that story, um, which is what it is, um, you know, Gonzalez overcomes the possible over-familiarity of, of the premise, which is a man that works as a miniaturizer for a company accidentally shrinks his wife. Um oh. Accidentally shrinks his wife. Oh wow! I feel like like I saw that movie. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> honey, I'm sorry I <laughs> right. shrunk you. Right. Um, and what's interesting though, and why I say he, he overcomes the familiarity of that premise is that what develops afterwards is fascinating because the protagonist of that story uh, builds a little house within the house for the wife to live in and uh, starts shrinking other objects for her to have and use and she starts leaving him little notes you know and that's the way that they communicate for a little while but the whole thing really kind of devolves into war and it's uh, really exciting to read Another war theme. Another war theme. Right. Yeah. Sounds like um, I'm going to say there's a Roald Dahl book that this is yeah. reminding me of. There, there's a bit in The Witches. That's that's yeah. what it is. The the miniature person attempting to to take revenge on the full size people who have shrunk him down. Right. That's yeah. That's a that's a great analogy. Um, now, Mike, who's publishing this book? This is Riverhead. This is Riverhead. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, Gonzalez shows a pretty wide range, even though, you know, you could definitely call his work in the vein of Saunders, uh, you know, he's like a son of Saunders. But, you know, there's stories in this collection. There's, you know, they're all fantastical or for the most part, they're they're pretty fantastical. Um, there's also a great sense of humor in them. Uh, one story called Pilot, Co-Pilot Writer uh, is about a, a child who was born in the air on a hijacked plane. And um, retraces the uh, this plane is has been tracing the same route around Dallas for, according to the child's best estimates, around 20 years. Um, mm. And so the uh-huh. child has grown into a man on this plane in in, in the air over Dallas. He has uh, a lot of archetypes that Rose you might recognize, like this zombies and yeah. werewolves, and yep. uh, you know. Uh, the surreal um, mixing here with, uh, I think, uh, an inherent humanity uh, that makes, you know, that makes for, like in The Miniature Wife, there's, he achieves, you know, a poignant moment with uh, an absurd or surreal premise. So if readers wanted to pick this up, would they look for it in the science fiction section of the bookstore? Or do you think it's going to be shelved with the, the literary fiction? I think they're shelving this as literary fiction. I think they're... Um, you know, uh, Gonzalez has been his. Some of these stories in the collection have been published in places like Conjunctions, and uh, he's definitely a writer you would see in McSweeney's mm-hmm. um, and things like that. You know, we actually spoke with him recently uh, as well for the magazine and asked him if he considered himself to be a magic realist mm, writer. I was just going to ask. Yeah, and um, he said, "I really like reading magical realism. I just always think." That when people see something that's like this, they automatically think that's what you're trafficking in. And he said, I just like playing with it. Right. We've been talking with Mike Harvke, who's the deputy reviews editor at Publishers Weekly, who's been telling us all about what books to look forward to in early 2013. Mike, thank you so very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank Thank you, guys. Thanks for the great tips. Yep. All right. And thank you to everyone who's been tuning in to Publishers Weekly Radio today. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and we'll see you next week on Publishers Weekly Radio. On Sirius XM Book Radio.
You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.